The Secrets of Doctor Who is brought to you by the Star Quest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who, where we discuss everything about the hit BBC series, Doctor Who. And today we're discussing the first Doctor story, The Time Meddler. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today on the panel are Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. And Father Corey Stika. Hey, Father Corey. How's it going? Uh, folks, remember to like The Secrets of Doctor Who on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash secrets of Doctor Who, funny enough. Retweet us on Twitter, where we're at SQPN. You can find us on uh, on Instagram. That's the word I was trying to find. Uh, at StarQuest Network. And uh, leave us comments wherever you find us. We love to hear from you. Uh, be sure to stick around to the end of the episode. We do have some great listener feedback on previous episodes. And I want to tell you about another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy called Let's Science. Uh, for Doctor Who fans, this is going to be a great one. Uh, Let's Science, you can find that wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash science. So this is a uh, first Doctor story. And Jimmy, can you give us a recap of what happens in Time Meddler? This week, the Doctor, Vicky, and brand new companion Stephen land in 1066 in England. They've arrived shortly before a Viking invasion that the Doctor knows is coming, and they discover a suspicious monk living at the local monastery. Unbeknownst to the Saxon villagers, he's living there all alone and is using a gramophone to project the sound of other monks singing from a record. He has numerous other objects from the future as well, and he displays advanced knowledge of the coming Viking invasion, just like the Doctor. Soon, an advanced scouting party of Vikings arrives, and conflict with the local Saxons ensues. There's a bit of running around in the woods and at the monastery, and in the monastery, Vicky and Stephen make a mind-blowing discovery that explains why the monk has devices and knowledge from the future. Disguised as a Saxon sarcophagus, the monk has a TARDIS, making him the very first member of the Doctor's unnamed people that we've ever met besides the Doctor and Susan. Imagine how mind-blowing that must mm. have been when this first aired. It turns out that the monk's plan is to change the course of world history. He wants to use the villagers to build beacon fires on the seaside clifftops, and these will lure in the Viking fleet of ships, and then the monk will destroy them with an atomic cannon. Since he won't ever have to face the Viking fleet before facing William the Conqueror, King Harold of England will win the Battle of Hastings, so William the Conqueror and the French will never take over England, and the monk will be able to guide a new, more peaceful Europe to develop beneficial technology more quickly. But the Doctor is opposed to this kind of time meddling, and based on information from the Doctor, the Saxons become convinced that the monk is a Viking spy, thwarting his plan to use them to build beacon fires. With his plan thwarted, the monk returns to the monastery, only to discover that the Doctor has rearranged the internal geometry of his TARDIS, making it too small on the inside for the monk to get in. The monk is thus stranded in 1066. The end. You mentioned in your recap the how shocking this would have been. And I, I tried to mm -hmm. kind of stop and put myself in the shoes of people who are watching this for the first time. Because we, we've talked about the meddling monk. We know that the doctor has his people. You know, we've already seen all that sort of thing. But what would it have been like for people watching this and seeing, like, what is this monk and why does he have a gramophone and a watch and all these anachronistic things? And suddenly that reveal. And like you said, that must have been really shocking. People, I would have leapt out of my seat if, I, if this was me watching it at the time. Uh, what, do you, yeah. what do you guys think? Oh, I, I, I agree. I mean, it, it's and this was a time when, you know, Doctor Who was still in its initial excitement and energy is only the you know end of the second season i mean this mm -hmm. this is literally the, the last serial of the second season yep and so for for to end the season with oh by the way we now know another of the doctor's race we now know as gallifreyans right 
But we didn't know that they were Gallifreyans at the time. Right. They were just the doctor's unnamed people, and here's another one of them after all this time. Yeah, and get yeah. to see and to get to see another TARDIS. You know, uh, right. get to see another ship that's very similar but not identical to the doctor's, as we find right. out because it's a newer model of the Type Forty TARDIS. Yeah, the monk is from about fifty years in the doctor's future. Although they, you can read it so that they know each other. Like when they first, when the doctor first speaks to the meddling monk, he says, "What are you doing here?" Um, so it sounds kind of like they know each other, but they established that the monk's TARDIS is from 50 years in the Doctor's future. The Doctor also recognizes it as a Type 4, presumably that's a, or as a Mark 4, presumably mm-hmm. that's a Type 40, which is the Doctor's TARDIS, Type 40 Mark 4. Right. right. And since the Doctor's TARDIS was old and run down, that might be, it was in a repair shop when he stole it, although they haven't established that yet. That could explain why he recognizes the monk's TARDIS, even though it's a more advanced design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I was thinking it must be very confusing to be a people, a time traveling people, and you know, you'd be running into people who are like from past and future all the time. I would think it would be very weird and very confusing, uh, including regenerating. That would add another level to the uh, to the confusion. So this is also a, there's several firsts about this story. It's the first historical that has sci-fi elements, so it's not a pure historical. It's the first one mm-hmm. that brings in a time traveler other than the Doctor and his companions. So that's an interesting addition to the storytelling types that they've got. It's also the first uh, – We, of course, right now we don't know it, but he, the meddling monk will be the first recurring individual uh, villain. You know, We have the Daleks, of course, but the first individual – and I, I kind of feel like He's a kind of template for the master, you know, a a member of the doctor's race who is an, an antagonist. Yeah, he's a, he's also a renegade time lord like the master mm-hmm. is, but yeah. he's different than the master in that he's he's not he's good. He's not in it for personal power. He doesn't he doesn't want to change history so he can rule history. He wants to change history so he can help the people living in it by getting them to a more advanced technological state more quickly. He refers, uh, this is set in 1066, and he refers to we can have airplanes by 1320, and by the time of Shakespeare, who lived in the 1500s, he could watch his play Hamlet on television. Right, mm-hmm. right. You know, it's also, as you mentioned, the this is the first time we've got a reference to the, the Time Lord version of the Prime Directive, the non-interference mm-hmm. policy, which... You know, if you think about time travel, I suppose that's got to be some a part of time travel, so you're not <laughs> messing things up on a constant <laughs> basis. So, yeah. well, depending on how time travel works, but sure. Yeah. One of the things this episode does is it establishes that sometimes, at least, history can be changed; that time can be rewritten. Right. That's something they've previously cast doubt on. Like if you remember in the Aztecs, when Barbara wants to advance Aztec civilization so they don't commit human sacrifice anymore. The doctor's like, no, that's not going to work. This can't happen. Not going to happen. And they make it sound like history can't be changed, but here they make it sound like history can be changed. And eventually they settle on, it's both. Sometimes (laughs) you can change it and sometimes you can't. Peanut butter and chocolate go great together. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, and, and you, with this episode kind of revolves around the Battle of Hastings, which is was topical at the time because we've got to remember this season was 1965. Yeah. So they were so about it was the yes yeah. the the millennium of the Battle of Hastings. Right, right. They were about to celebrate that, and I guess I gather from what I read briefly online, or not the millennium, the, the 900th no, no, Nova Centenary. Yeah, the 900. Yeah, uh, yeah there are, my children will probably be around for the millennium uh, of that. Uh, certainly, I hope. Um, God mm-hmm. willing. So, it, it would have been. I what I gather is, is that there was a lot of going on at the BBC. Like a lot of different programs were celebrating the Battle of Hastings with special programming like that. And so this was a way for Doctor Who to get in on that. Um, yeah. Although it's not set at the Battle of Hastings, it's sort of adjacent to it, which is yeah. And and for our, for our american or at least non-british friends the battle of hastings is like the big turning point in british history yeah it's sort of it's it's not exactly 1776 to them but it's kind of 1776 to them because it was when the um 
when the island, as we said, was conquered by William the Conqueror from France, and it led to hundreds of years of conflict with France, trying to decide who is the boss of France. Is it the French people who live in France, or is it the French people who are ruling England? It also profoundly changed the English language, because as a result of conquest by the French, I mean, the the base of the English language is Germanic. Mm-hmm. And so we have words, loads of words that come to us from Germanic roots. But then after the new French overlords came in, uh, they were speaking a Romance language. And so we got a lot of Latinate roots in English. And that's one of the reasons why English has two words for everything, yep. <laughs> um, with one of them typically coming from a Germanic root and one of them typically coming from a French or Latin root. And it, it this this is why, for example, we have a difference between cow and beef and between pork and swine mm-hmm. and so forth. Yeah, especially legal language, because a lot of legal documents had to be written for in both English, you know, the uh, old English and French. And so you have last will and testament and that sort of stuff, too. Uh, so those that was like sort of the classic. So, yeah, a very important date for yeah. for for. Britain, but also for countries that sort of came out of Britain, like the United States. It's an interesting historical uh, moment. There is, incidentally, um, a, a, mo- a conlang, a constructed language called Anglish, which mm-hmm. is um, English without the French influence. Mm. And there's a website devoted to Anglish that is just great. Um, it, it, it leads to some really interesting things, like, for example, Plant is a word that has Latinate roots, and so in English you don't say plants, you say wart. Ah. Um, and so, like that's why Saint John's wart, the herb. Well, mm-hmm. it's Saint John's plant, and uh, similarly, all animals are deer. <laughs> and and so you get these great pictures on the English website where you have like pictures of 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 little short cactuses. And it'll the caption of the picture will say a picture of warts from the Southern Arizona Institute for Wart Lore, <laughs> <laughs> and you'll have a picture of a kitten chasing a butterfly, and it will be two deer, one chasing the other. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. That's good. So, uh, among other firsts, uh, I, I know I'll, I'll get this. I think it's the last of, of the first that the serial p- uh, proposes. It's the first trip with new companion, Stephen, as you mentioned, Stephen mm-hmm. Taylor. And it's the first without any of the original companions. No Susan, no mm-hmm. Ian, no Barbara. So we've it's a sort of a new era of Doctor Who that we're entering here with this story, which is you know, also very interesting. Well, I was gonna say, you know, and Stephen escaped from Mechanus, from the, the fire on Mechanus. At yep. like the la- he says that the last second as the, the, the rope broke, he was able to get to the ground. Um and then somehow snuck into the TARDIS. Of course, we don't see that because he wasn't originally planned to be a companion when that story was being written. Right, right. There's also another production first, which is at the end, up to now, they've always given us a next episode teaser, you know, at least on screen, you know, next episode, and it'll be the title of the next episode. But mm-hmm. they don't do that this time. Instead, they give us a spacescape with kind of distorted or visually processed versions of the faces of Stephen, Vicky, and the Doctor appearing in sequence um, against the spacescape. Yeah. And, and so we're not being teased for the next season. Mm-hmm. Is it because they weren't sure there was going to be a next season? Well, I know there at least were rumors that, the, that it might have been canceled at this point, or they weren't sure, but I think they did know. Um, I think those rumors are inaccurate. But they may have just not planned for it, or they may have decided we're going to move away from that because it was the first two years were very much episode to episode. You know, they didn't even have story titles. Um, They had episode titles, Mm -hmm. but like, you know, the first episode is An Unearthly Child. It's followed by, what is it, 100,000 BC? Mm. And then we get these three cavemen things, but they're all kind of put together as one four-part story. Right that today is called an unearthly child. Um, And so in hindsight, what they typically would do is take the titles of the individual episodes that form a complete story and pick one of those 
as the title of the overall story, but originally overall stories did not have titles. It was just, this week's episode is called this, and next week's episode is called that. Mm-hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, that is true. That's true. So let's get into the talk about the story itself. Uh, you know, it starts with Vicky missing Ian and Barbara. She's kind of bored. She's kind of rattling around. It's just her and the doctor, which I can imagine it's kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, less interesting without other people there. Uh, but then they hear someone rattling around. And as you mentioned, it, it turns out it's Stephen who snuck on board and uh, is looking pretty ragged and collapses, in fact, because uh, at the end of the last story, he was, you know, it was everything was on fire and he was it was uh, uh, um, he was running from the fire and that sort of thing. So he kind of collapses and they revive him. And he's still got his panda toy um, <laughs> yeah. hi fi, his mascot, although. Yep. That may be, I don't know. I, that could be the last time we see Hi-Fi. I don't remember Hi-Fi showing up in future episodes, but it may. I think he even hands it to Vicky at this point, and that might be like she just takes mm-hmm. it. I, I do like one line they asked to kind of cover the fact that they didn't introduce him to the TARDIS at the end of last episode. She says, if you were following us on Mechanist, why didn't you call out? And he said, I never stopped screaming. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> So and then they try to you know uh, or Vicky tries to explain to him where where he is and you know what what they're on is you know is a it's not just a spaceship and um he's very skeptical about the fact that the TARDIS is a time machine they're having a hard time convincing him and so that's when they they uh they land on uh earth in the beach in England in was it Northumbria that they were yes in? okay um, and oh, that's because that's where the Vikings kept landing uh, in previous ages from, or previous times from this 1066 and um, so but it's funny because that means that every time they run into something that the meddling monk has brought back from the future yeah. he's like see I told you we're, we're we're not time traveling you're still trying to trick me this is something else <laughs> well and and that plays an an interesting role for the audience because the audience knows the TARDIS is a time machine so mm-hmm. when Vicky and and Stephen are in this primitive looking environment from a 20th century perspective and all of a sudden, here's a wristwatch, and Vicky is uh, Stephen. It holds it up to Vicky and says, "Still want to tell me this is 1066?" He actually he keeps saying the 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 10th century, which is makes no sense because this is the 11th century. <laughs> right, but right. but it 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 raises a doubt in the audience's mind. I mean, we know the TARDIS is a time machine, but we also know they don't have control of where they go. Mm-hmm. So where are they now? Why is it they're this mix of the primitive and and the technological? Could it be that they're in some kind of like historical recreation and really they're in the 20th century? Yep. Could it be this is some kind of science fiction his, history park or and they're in the future? You know, what's going on with this weird mix? And and eventually you know, you get the revelation, oh, it's because of another, and we don't have the name, but it's because of another Time Lord. And mm-hmm. that brings it all together, all the anomalies together, and, and it's like the conclusion of a magic trick. It seems unpredictable that it's going to be a member of the Doctor's race, but it, once you see the reveal, it also seems inevitable. Right. And that's like, that's the classic magic trick, the one that is unpredictable, but in hindsight, inevitable. And we had seen in the chase where the doctor thought, oh, we're in, you know, horror, some horror universe or horror alternate universe or whatever. And it turns out it was uh, basically a fun house, you know, a horror, yeah. you know, a horror, horror house or something like that. You know, that yeah. it was it was just a a, a trick that, that yeah, he didn't doc- understand. So, so I mean, it, it's something they could play off of and say, well, maybe this is what's happened again. We've landed in, in a, you know, a, like you said, like a, a theme park or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the doctor's theory in that case was they'd actually landed inside the human mind. <laughs> that's right. That's mm. right. And they will actually eventually go to a far in the future, many seasons away, right? Uh, a fictional world, right? Uh, the land of well, fiction. Uh, the, they do go to the land of fiction. Yes, that's in the second doctor's time. Okay. Okay. So meanwhile, uh, they're on the beach. One of the things I like is the doctor kind of picks up this oh. helmet. <laughs> With, oh, man. with horns and he says oh look see i told you it's a viking helmet but jimmy as we at father Corey, as we know as yeah. we know viking helmets didn't actually have horns that's just not oh. a thing that was an opera thing i, I think actually <laughs> viking helmet with horns Hi-ya. <laughs> well, i mean it, obviously it's not a space helmet for a cow 
Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's what the Which doctor that, says. That has become a famous line in, in Doctor Who, and there's a couple of books talking about the production of Doctor Who. Yes. Yeah, with that I title. Was gonna, I was going to mention, it, at least this scene gave us, what do you think it is? A space helmet for a cow? And, <laughs> and that gave us the name for the excellent comedy history of Doctor Who books. Right, right. Yeah, there's a two-volume set that's out there. Yeah. Um so yeah, I just thought that was funny and I had to call it out because yeah, Viking helmets don't have horns. Um yeah. and Oh, oh, oh. Yep. One thing I, I meant to mention while they're on the TARDIS, because they've just had this terrifying encounter with the Daleks in in the chase. And when they hear Steven rumbling around in a in another room of the TARDIS, they don't know it's Steven. And Vicky thinks it might be a Dalek right. that has gotten on board, which is a good guess. And she and so the doctor is standing in front of her and they're about to open the door and confront whatever it is. And they don't say anything about it. But Vicky has taken off her shoe and is holding it in her hand. Mm-hmm. And so Vicky is prepared. It's like Ace Ace with her baseball bat. Yeah. Vicky is prepared to assail the Dalek with her shoe. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I think that's awesome. And the doctor takes off his jacket and holds it up. And it's like, why is he doing that? Oh, he's going to throw it over the eye stock. That's, but they don't, yeah. they don't yep. again, they don't say it. They leave it up to us to figure it out. Uh, so uh, we have this Saxon village and it's, you know, kind of stereotypical for, you know, TV movies of dirty and uncultured in a bit. But but the people are friendly. <laughs> And filled with men who have fake beards, except for one of them. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yes. And, fake, um, and wigs, which are awful. Oh, and the wigs. <laughs> yeah. The fake, <laughs> fake, the wigs. Uh. By the way, we also meet the monk. We see him. We don't talk to him, but we see him on the beach. Yeah. Um, because he's skulking around initially on the cliffs above the beach. And he looks down and sees the TARDIS materialize. And he looks at it meaningfully, like he may understand what it is. And he says, hmm, I wonder. And so, um, so he, and he later does some eavesdropping on the beach itself. But we already have a setup that he's intellectually engaged with the situation of the TARDIS materializing. Right. I love the scene where he's in there listening and he's sitting behind a rock, you know, Hiding behind a rock, and the doctor's leaning on the rock, and he's plinking. I think it was the doctor plinking little pebbles that keep falling down on the monk, not realizing <laughs> yeah. it. That's right. Yeah, that was good. Uh, and so, yeah, we and we hear the monastery nearby. We hear you know monks chanting, and the uh, the the monk is running around, and he keeps looking at his wrist. He pulls up his you know the sleeve of his robe and looks at his wrist. We don't know why at first, but he's like, but like I would look at my watch, right? Uh, oh, what time is it? And so, but he doesn't have a watch on because hey, Dom wears a watch. Wear, how quaint! How quaint! A wristwatch. Uh, but the monk lost con- his Apple Watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then uh, so. Uh, by the way, the woman in the village that we see first, Edith, is played by the same actress who was one of the cave women from an, unearth- an, an unearthly child. So, and uh, she's got a much better part now. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh man, those initial <laughs> those cavemen episodes are painful. Un- un- an unearthly child is great, but the three that follow it are terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Edith, Edith is a much better role, and mm-hmm. she's a competent woman. She she's a kind woman. She is intelligent. She does you know things to advance the plot. I like how in her initial encounter with the doctor, the doctor pumps her for exposition yeah. to find out what year we're in and, and where we are. But he does it in a way that's oblique. Instead of just set, walking up and saying, what year is this and where are we? He He's more subtle about it. And he'll he'll make references to things and let her correct him, thus giving him the information he's actually after. So he's like deliberately making mistaken guesses just so she can correct him. Mm-hmm. And and then the doctor kind of gives a little bit of a monologue to kind of tell the audience what's going on. You know, it's like yeah. sort of talking to himself, but what he's really doing is, you know, in the script, informing the audience what what's what's going where we are and what's going on. Yeah, although actually one of those speeches he gives like that where he mentions the Battle of Hastings, I think this is a later speech where he's once he's realized the monk is planning to change history. Mm-hmm. But he gives a speech about about the Battle of Hastings and what'll happen and he, it's just an aside to the camera, right. and that was all William Hartnell. Hmm. 
it was an ad lib that he did ostensibly to be helpful to make sure the audience got the point, but it was actually more it was actually less subtle it was more blunt than mm-hmm. the than the producers expected and it was not in the script and so they thought it was unsubtle of him and they would have refilmed it but couldn't for some reason for right. a technical mm-hmm. reason or something interesting yeah also that we have like a new speaking of first there's like a new i don't know showrunner there's a new high up official in this one who was making changes and william hartnell didn't like them and so he uh, 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 reportedly in rehearsal for this story, he threw, he, he threw, he pretended, uh, this is the word I've seen. He pretended mm. to throw a tantrum. <laughs> mm. Yes. Pretended. Uh, well, yeah. but you know, I can, he is an actor, so it's like, okay, I don't like this. I better lay down some boundaries. Okay. I guess I'll have to throw a tantrum. And then you, right. You do use your acting skills to, yeah, to, fake a tantrum you're not necessarily feeling right 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 um and uh, Har- william hartnell uh he's only in three of these uh episodes of the four of this mm-hmm. st- uh, serial yep. uh he takes the second one off he's apparently took another holiday uh he, he recently done that too uh we hear we hear him so he's got some voiceover recordings like from from inside a cell but we don't see mm-hmm. him in, in this so he, he does take a take some time off um so uh, we have this scene where uh, Vicky, Vicky and Stephen got separated from the doctor. The doctor, they, Vicky and Stephen were going to climb up the cliff. The doctor's going to walk around, and they 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 they're basically separated at this point until the third episode. There, there's a, they, mm-hmm. they don't get together again. And we all we also have TARDIS separation because the tide comes in and <laughs> yeah. covers up the TARDIS. That's right. That's right. So uh, Stephen ends up attacking this poor, you know local who's out who'd been out hunting who found the wristwatch and he he attacks the guy to get the watch from him and then vicky's like aghast at this like aggressive action i mean steven's much more aggressive than than uh, ian ever was he is from like three three centuries less far into the future than vicky is so steven's a savage to vicky (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) he's also a soldier so yeah yep and I, I guess we're trying to establish, like the the writers trying to establish the difference between Ian and Stephen, maybe a little bit. Well, maybe I, I think I think it's really I think the same thing would have happened with Ian. The key thing in this scene is he needs to get the watch, right? And and they need to have some action in the show, and they need not to have a lot of dialogue with this hunter because you got to pay people if they talk on camera. That's right, <laughs> and so it's an easy way just. He sees the guy looking at the watch and it's like, hey, give me that and runs after him. And the guy resists. <laughs> he mm-hmm. tackles the poor guy <laughs> and they're rolling around on the ground. Um, so then we have so that so the, the monk takes the doctor captive. The, the doctor goes up to the monastery. He's hearing yeah. the chant, but he hears it wind down. So yeah, the monks right. are like. he hears it like slow down and speed up and that tells him that um that something fishy's going on at the monastery right right and so uh we have this scene so that so the 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 doctor's imprisoned in this in the cell in the monastery and we see we have the scene of the monk preparing breakfast for the doctor, and mm-hmm. he's got a toast from the toaster, and he's making tea. And we see the he's gramophone. Got ele- he's got an electric fry pan, which yeah. are awesome. Those will cook hamburgers in no time. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean he's, he must have a generator somewhere, uh, I guess. He's, uh, but he's yeah, he's pulling the energy from his TARDIS because later on we see a cable coming out from his TARDIS. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. That's right. And it's it's funny because it's all this mid twentieth century technology. It's not. You know, mm-hmm. far advanced. Yep. It's you know, and not even like 1965 well, for with, some of it, with one or two exceptions. Now we later see on board his TARDIS, he has a whole collection of artifacts from all across history. Yeah, but I made a list of the ones that he's taken out, or at least the ones that I saw that he's taken out. He's got a wristwatch, a phonograph, a toaster, an electric fly, fry pan binoculars mm-hmm. snuff in a snuff box yep. so more episode more evidence of time lord tobacco use the doctor smoked mm-hmm. a pipe in the second episode and now the monk is taking snuff <laughs> he's also got a me- medicine chest including penicillin 
Uh, he has a slide rule, which is so mid-20th century. <laughs> and he has an atomic cannon with tiny neutron bombs. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Which is a little more advanced. Yes, I guess, I guess that's true. <laughs> so uh, the Vicky and Steven end up getting captured by the villagers – and you know the doctor and Stephen and Vicky, you know, keep saying, "Oh, we're travelers. We're just travelers from afar." Uh, but the villagers are getting suspicious because Northumbria was constantly being raided by Vikings. That was one of the 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 the, the uh, historical facts of of that area. And if you've watched the the TV show The Vikings, you you would know that. So, uh, <laughs> and um, the they get their people they're suspicious. They they're, may be spies. Yeah, because they're very strange travelers. They're dressed strangely. They're not yep. like people from the next village or something and they're not carrying supplies right you know they're like scrounging off the land which is what viking spies would do yes and uh or <laughs> as we see pl- uh pillage so the uh but the villagers I, I see especially edith and her husband Wolnoth, i think it is um, Wolnoth. yeah th- they're very generous to the travels mm-hmm. which is which was true of the of the time is you would be you know generous to hospitable you would give food to people and you know giving food to two sets of strangers and the and the monk cuz we have a scene of uh, them bringing food to the mm-hmm. monk in the monastery that's no small thing given how close to starvation most people throughout history have lived right i mean that's just a fact yeah. most people live yeah. barely above starvation level and sometimes below it uh, well i was amazed not only does do, when Woolnoth tells edith to get them some food for their journey she goes in and she gets some like chicken fried chicken legs and is putting them in or boiled chicken legs or something and she's mm-hmm. she puts them in a cloth napkin right and and hands it to them and I'm like you're giving up you're giving a piece of cloth to these strangers wow mm-hmm. you are super generous <laughs> right yeah. cloth was I mean I like just gold. give them like here have some chicken legs <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and, and, leaves <laughs> you know and this this isn't like today where we can go to the grocery store we can go to you know Walmart or whatever and pick up what we need it's you know like for food there's a reason why root cellars existed Yep. to preserve food. There's a reason why pickling existed. There's a reason why things like jerky were created to preserve food. Heck, that's why beer was one of the reasons why beer was created to <laughs> kind of yep. help with that preservation of the resources that they have because they'd only get it at time of harvest. Oh, I thought you were going to say the preservation of the people who drink the beer. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> well that that's, that was the mead. We saw that. We saw that with the Vikings and the mead, but <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, yeah. So, you know, everything they give, they have to grow or cultivate themselves. And that's one of the nice things is, I've I've seen and even experienced even in their poverty, poor people are often the most generous because they mm-hmm. know how close the line is to mm-hmm. between life and death, and so it. I, I like well, that they include that here. There's a hospitality ethic in cultures that live close to the edge because yeah. anybody who gets isolated from their home is going to need help, and so there's yep. an understood conscious social obligation to help the dislocated. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then when Stephen and uh, Vicky are leaving, the villagers wish them "God be with you," and they respond in kind. Uh, you know, so this, mm-hmm. the, you know, that faith element as well. So then we start to see. Yeah, the Vic- I know this is this is five hundred years before the Reformation. We don't got to worry about Protestants. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Vikings show up. They climb the cliff uh, with grappling hooks, and uh, we have uh, this one Viking we don't see again, but he's got this awesome helmet, not with horns this time. Oh yeah, <laughs> but. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And actually, I have to say, I've seen Viking actual Viking helmets in, in a, a museum here uh, near where I live in Mystic, Connecticut. And it actually looked a lot like some of the helmets I saw. So that at least was somewhat accurate. But uh, the, it's a recon force ahead of Harold Hadrada's invasion force. That's the uh, the Viking king who's who's invading at this point. And uh, so they're, they're going to scatter in pairs or in groups. Small actually, parties. Small parties. There's three of them that we follow. Uh, to kind of scout out the land ahead of the landing force to find out where they should land. Uh, and they're there to keep um, quiet they're not to be noticed. Of course, they, they don't do a very good job of that. Mm. So, uh, well, they attack Edith. Yeah. That's going to get noticed. Right. Yep. And there's a strong implication without saying it that, you know, they, they, they have assaulted her uh, in, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Vikings were wont to do. Oh, I didn't get that. She's sort I, of semi-catatonic when she's discovered by her husband afterwards. Yeah, I I took that as there because when she is initially discovered, she's totally catatonic. 
Mm-hmm. And her eyes are open, but she's not moving or emoting or anything. And I took that as, oh, she's dead. They've killed her. And and then um, then it turns out she's not dead. She starts moving and talking again. Yeah. And I took that to just be, oh, okay, this is typical 1960s television. It's a death fake out. Oh, maybe. Yeah. I, I kind of yeah, took – yeah, anyway. I, I yeah. kind of took it like Dom, too. Now, they did show her mm-hmm. with like a big bruise that she was – you know, cut and bruise and everything. So right. they obviously did physically assault her. Just how mm-hmm. you know, I I, I kind of took it as Dom did too, is that they went more than just physical assault. Right, mm. right. The way they drug her in and everything. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. the implication of Vikings. You know. Right. Well, it could be. Yeah. Um. I am. I noticed. So afterwards, when Wolnoth, her husband, comes home with. Eldred, that's the um, mm-hmm. that's the younger guy, mm-hmm. um, and they find her. Uh, Wolnoth is just incredibly angry at the Vikings, which would go either way. I mean, it, it, they, even if they just physically assaulted the, the woman, right? You'd be incredibly angry, and his, the actor's anger is very moving and effective. And he's mm-hmm. like, "Get them in, you know, right. we're going to go after these guys right now." And one of the things that I think adds to that scene and a bunch of other scenes in this is the soundtrack is the score is very minimal mm-hmm. there yeah. there is some music at you know for dramatic moments but not near as much as you'd think it's very quiet and what that let what as a result of that lack of a robust score does is it lets us have a more contemplative psychological experience of the of the drama as we're just silent for a lot of it. And we're hearing nature sounds and we're hearing other things. And we don't have this big sweep of music telling us what to think. It's all very, it's very quiet and that adds to the suspense Hmm. and, and accentuates the other emotions and makes them, makes them more naturalistic. I agree. That's a good point. Uh, Stephen and Vicky have gone up to the monastery to kind of, they're kind of tracking the doctor, trying to find him. And they, they have this you know, little battle of wits with the monk, but I have to say, Stephen and Vicky, maybe not, you know, make your plans for how to outwit the monk by right outside the door where he's <laughs> behind. Maybe like in, move out of earshot. <laughs> in full voice. Yeah. 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 Uh, uh, by the way, I like how they are developing the relationship between Vicky and Stephen. You know, Susan could be a little bit demure, a little bit retiring mm-hmm. or deferential to other people. But um but Vicky is not. She like takes charge of Stephen. Yeah. She yeah. starts giving Stephen orders. And we have this um kind of tug of war between Stephen and Vicky where they each want to give orders to the other. Mm-hmm. And like there's one moment it's it's after this scene, but when they finally do make their way into the monastery, they're they're hunting for the doctor who's been kidnapped. Oh, they don't know that, but they suspect it, and so they they've gotten into the front door of the monastery, and they're confronted by two ways to go, and they both look around, look in both directions, and and look at each other and shrug. You know, in essence, <laughs> saying, "I don't know which way we should go." Yeah, and then they both turn away from each other and start going in opposite directions, and both of them at the same moment say, "Follow me." <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it's as great a comedy moment as the the moment in Tomb of the Cybermen where Jamie and the Doctor hold hands with each other, thinking they are reassuring Victoria. <laughs> By yes. taking Victoria by the hand, but they've accidentally taken hands with each other, yeah. and then they realize it and yank their hands away. <laughs> yeah. This is comedy like that. And then, per Vicky's dominance in, in the relationship, after they've separated and gone their own ways and said, follow me to each other, it's Stephen that turns around and follows Vicky. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, Vicky is much more, plays much more mature than Susan. They, I think they mm-hmm. played Susan as younger intentionally. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vicky plays a little older and more assured. So I, I like that. Well, and, and, and Peter Purvis, who played uh, Stephen, did a great job just in his facial expressions where you could tell he's, he's miffed. He's, he's, yeah. you know, he's like, why, why am I going to take orders from her? Again, he's, he's, you know, sold, he was a soldier, you know, he served on starships and everything. 
and he's got this girl basically leading him by the nose, more or less. <laughs> Young girl, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So then we have this uh, great uh, ambush of the Viking party that's still, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, drunk on the mead that they pillaged, mm-hmm. and uh, we have Gunnar the Giant. He's one of the uh, the Vikings. He, so he's and like, he's he's got an eye patch. Yes, so you know he's cool. And so it takes <laughs> takes three Saxons to take him down, and we have this like this battle, and uh, the Gunnar gets it go you know it gets uh, killed, and the other Saxon uh, the other Vikings escape, um, and some of the Saxons are injured, including Eldred, and they're like village monastery monastery is closer let's go there and so now we have this little element that the monk doesn't anticipate of having these wounded villagers coming they i can't let them know there's no other monks here i can't let them know what's going on here and so we have this uncertainty about them entering the monastery yeah so wolnoth takes eldred to the monastery and the monk lets him in and then the monk and, and and the monk is trying to hustle him out of there it's yep. like okay, let me let me treat this guy and then take him back to the village. And Woolnoth is like, oh no, father, um, he's much too weak. He's going to need to stay here for a day or two. <laughs> and I'll I'll send my wife with food, and I'll come by mm-hmm. too if work permits and things like that. Because it, it, one of the things they establish is these people are living hand to mouth, and like at, on at on one of the mornings Woolnoth just looks at the folks and he's head man in the village he looks at the other villagers and say well let's get to the fields yep. so it's yeah. like that's what we do every day we go to yeah. the fields and we work the fields um but uh the the monk then treats Eldred using a medical kit which he keeps mm-hmm. out of out of sight and um and he gives him he's apparently like bandaged his 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 uh sword wound and he comes to him and and he's lost a lot of blood and he comes to him and gives him a a pill to swallow and we know that the the pill is penicillin you know yes. which is in mid 20th century drug and um and Woolnoth says what's that and he says oh it's penicillin it's an herb <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes yes uh yeah he keeps almost you know uh, uh, uh blurting out thing you know anachronistic things that they and yeah. revealing himself um, well, he he's, says, he's not smooth you know, yeah. you know, he says that you know the this guy's lost a lot of blood and I, i'd give him a blood transfusion if i could and the the Wolnuff is like blood trends never mind <laughs> yeah. never mind you know <laughs> right right so uh so Vicky and Steven have broken into the monastery to get the doctor and the doctor's already broken out because we as we learn the there's always a uh, secret passage out of these fortress like places uh, in case you get attacked and that was in the cell yeah, yeah so okay they hang they 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 hang a lantern on the fact there's a secret door in a cell <laughs> right mm-hmm. and 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 Vicky tries to explain it and it's a good attempt you know on the writer's part it's like yeah don't they always have secret passages in these places in case of invasions or sieges or fires or something it's like no they don't (laughs) (laughs) especially not in in prisoners cells (laughs) right also if you if you're expecting sieges you know if you've got a way out that's a way in for your enemies Mm -hmm. so is it yeah yep always a way in well and of course it's funny that they call it a cell because in monasteries cell is the monk's room you know that's what they call the rooms where the monks live you know they just have most most monasteries, the monks just have one room that's theirs, and then everything else is in common. You know, rec- recreation rooms and everything else in common. And so, yeah, to call it a cell is a different meaning in a monastery. You know, it's not a place <laughs> that you lock the monk into. You know, yeah. it's it's a place where the monk goes to rest for the night, basically. Yep. So uh, the doctor has gone back to the village and reveals to Edith by the way that the Vikings are going to land south of this village and uh they'll lose the in a battle to King Harold uh but that delay and the force march south to meet William the Conqueror at Hastings uh is what causes Harold to lose that battle. I'm not sure why the doctor is telling all this to Edith except <laughs> to inform the audience of what's going to happen. Uh mm-hmm. but you know so so now she knows um and uh, oh, then the next scene, the monk has a to-do list. 
He's yeah, got, I love the to do list. He's got all his steps of all the things of his of his master plan uh, on his little uh, roll up sheet on the wall that he's checking off one by one. You know, uh, place the atomic cannons, light the bonfires. You yeah. know. The, the- so so the official list is number one: arrive in Northumbria. Two: position atomic cannon. Three: sight Vikings. Four: light beacon fires. Five: destroy Viking fleet. Six, Norman Landing. Seven, Battle of Hastings. Eight, meet King Harold. <laughs> I'm not sure I would need that enumerated on a list to hang on the wall, but okay. You know. <laughs> you know, they always tell you good planning. You make sure that you have your to-do list set up and everything and every step's lined out. And, you know, you, you, he's, got his, he's got his planner next to him, you know, his, his daytime planner, what he's going to do today as well. Yeah, David Allen would be very proud of his getting things done there, getting it out of his mind and into his inbox. <laughs> So uh, the doctor manages to get the drop on the monk uh, at one point, and he's got him at sword point and kind of forces him in. And the, the, the But then the Vikings show up, and so the doctor has to put on a monk's robe in order to sell the, 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 the roost, you know, so the Vikings don't clue in it. But the, the Vikings end up then turning the tables on the doctor, and the monk gets away for a little bit, but he gets captured too. And so they take them as hostages because the, the Vikings are now afraid of the villagers and one Viking wanted to run away, but the other one said, no, no, let's go hide in the monastery. That's the place to hide. Um, and uh, we can take hostages. Yeah. But then the, the doctor, you, we have this, you know, back and forth of the doctor, and the monk, then get the drop on the monks and uh, I mean, on the Vikings and tie them up. Um, and that's when we get to this point where, um, Vicky and Stephen are in the chapel, and the, the the sarcophagus. I took it to be an altar at first. So did mm-hmm. I. Yeah, yep, uh, but but the later on the the monk will describe it as a as a Saxon sarcophagus, and they they realize that there's a little door in the in the in the back of it, and climb in, and yes, they they they're in the TARDIS, and that's where episode three ends. I'm pretty sure. Uh, yeah. On this cliffhanger, this re- this revelation. A TARDIS? We have to wait to find out about this to, for mm-hmm. what's going on here for a week. I could like again the the audience would have been flabbergasted. Yeah, the uh, last line was literally Vicky Vicky saying, "The monk has a TARDIS," and yeah. just you know, same thing. You're flabbergasted, just amazed by what they saw. So, so, uh, and that's where they discover that the monk has this private collection of historical stuff from throughout history, but also conveniently <laughs> including, a, including a neutron bomb, <laughs> including some neutron bombs, yeah. uh, a bunch of them <laughs> and, and conveniently his diary. Uh, so that's pretty mm-hmm. good. Yeah. It, according to the diary, he put Da Vinci up to powered flight. So he's the one who gave Da Vinci the idea of uh, powered flight and set up a bank account in 1968 and uh, collected that and the compound interest 200 years later, which would be quite a lot of money at 200 years of compound mm-hmm. interest. Yeah, although, interestingly, this must have been some super secure bank he put it in. because <laughs> So if he deposits the money, as the diary says, in 1968, and he comes back 200 years later, that's 2168. Well, the Daleks took over Earth in 2150. So, <laughs> and they've already established that. That's Susan's departure. Right. Yep. So, um, so uh, this is some super secure bank that survived the Dalek invasion with its assets intact. <laughs> right, maybe, right. maybe that's why he made so much money is because it was like one of the few banks that actually survived the invasion. Right. This reminds mm-hmm. me of that Star, Star Trek Next Generation episode where the uh, the rich American uh, with expecting his banks to be with all the compound interest to 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 be available. Oh, it's a it's a very prestigious bank. It should be fine. <laughs> that was a little no. different circumstance. <laughs> First season finale, the neutral zone. Of That's next right. Gen. Yep. Yeah. The the monk also claims to have used an anti anti gravitational lift to build Stonehenge. Right. Yep. Right. Right. He takes credit for that. Um, and so the doctor declares him a time meddler. You are a time meddler, which must be a thing among uh, the doctor's people. And says the golden rule is never interfere with the course of history. Uh, but the 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 monks, you know, is. He's a rebel. He's rejected this idea that we should never interfere with history. We must make things better uh, than it, than they were. And so he wants to change history to allow people to advance. But also, he says, to prevent all the wars of succession in France that then, you know, causes all of the, the conflict throughout Europe because of it. And it's not a it's not a bad motive. It's a good motive. Yeah. He also appeals to the fact my way is is more fun. Yeah, this is true. This is true. You can't discount that. So the uh, 
the villagers end up storming the monastery looking for the monk, but also uh, they've, they've, they've stumbled on the atomic cannon the, and uh, the, the Vicky and Stephen have revealed to them about the, the uh, he's asked them to light bonfires and they were like, why would we light bonfires? And he ch- tells them some cockamamie story about, Oh, uh, a ship is coming, delivering some stuff for the monastery. Uh, but they've become suspicious, and they think the monk mm-hmm. is now a spy for the Vikings because he's recently arrived, and so maybe he's a spy for the Vikings. Yeah, and- they they say that a group that the monastery is long abandoned, but a few weeks ago a group of monks took up residence in it. Although we've only ever ever seen one of the monks, mm-hmm. right? And and implying that it is there is only one monk with a gramophone, and uh, so the villagers end up storming the monastery, find the Vikings. And as you mentioned, the doctor sabotages the monk's TARDIS by removing this component. We don't know exactly what it does at first, but he he leaves a note for the monk. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the sabotage is that the TARDIS is now as big on the inside as it is on the outside, in in the sense of it's made smaller to fit inside the sarcophagus shape. Uh, And the monk can't climb in. Yeah, it may even be smaller on the mm-hmm. inside than, than the sarcophagus is. Because you could get inside a sarcophagus, that's what they're for. <laughs> yeah. but, um, but he the, the implication is the monk cannot get in uh, right. to, to the TARDIS afterwards. Yeah, when, when, we, when you see the monk looking inside the TARDIS, his face basically fills the entire door. Right, right. You know? Which is, so it's, it's, not like yeah. he could, it's not like he could squeeze in and still try to do something. Kind of like the opposite of flatline in one sense. <laughs> we well, just talked about it, that. Yeah, it, it's it's yeah. I was I was going to mention it's like flatline where we have TARDIS geometry things and an earlier episode of the First Doctor, Planet of the Giants. Oh mm-hmm. yeah, where where the TARDIS itself and everyone in it shrinks. So I love these episodes where we play around with the geometries of TARDISes. Um, but here, yeah, it's uh, it's similar to those and. It's one that he at least theoretically should not be able to get inside. Right, right. right. And Although I, yeah, I like the way they will. thought about it too, is where the doctor tied a string around the component, the dimensional stabilizer, yeah. and went outside and pulled it out from outside. Yeah. So that they weren't trapped inside of it. Right. Very clever. Or very clever. In theory, shrunk by it or whatever. But Right. So um that and that means the you know, like we mentioned the monk is now uh marooned in 1066 for now of course time lords always have a way of getting unmarooned uh apparently mm-hmm. and uh and, and, you know, and Vic- they in the monk's next appearance which is in the daleks master plan they will address how the monk got out and oh, okay. it's just it's just a line of sci-fi techno babble about how he how he got around the problem okay and then uh you know, vicky gives the doctor the bad news oh the tardis was washed away by the tide and the doctor says you know the, you know tardises do not get washed away by the tide that easily they are actually pretty resilient they're apparently rooted to the spot if water hits them but if a bunch of peasants pick it up they can slap it on a cart and take it away <laughs> yeah <so. laughs> yes. we have yeah. seen that yeah yeah uh and uh we've seen uh, um weeping angels rocket back and forth that was the other one so uh and that's that's where this one ends and the end of that season as well. So uh any any final thoughts Father Corey? So kind of one interesting thing uh for the time when we're recording this uh it mentions that good king Edward had died, Edward the Confessor, Saint Edward the Confessor. Yeah. Uh last week was October 13th, which was his feast day in the traditional Latin calendar. Yeah. Oh, right. it's also Chris, Chris Carter's birthday from the X-Files. Oh, cool. <laughs> so it's kind of, it was kind of a cool coincidence to watch this right after That's his true. feast day. I, I believe, I don't think he's got a day on the, the new calendar, but he did on the pre-Vatican II calendar. My parish used to be St. Edward's parish years ago, but it was, it's now St. Edith Stein because uh, the miracle for her canonization occurred in my parish, which is a whole nother story. Oh, cool. Yeah, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll have to tell that one sometime. But um, but yeah, I have an affinity for St. Edward, too, so that was pretty cool. All right, Jimmy, uh, any final thoughts? I like when the doctor and the monk first meet. Uh, the doctor gets the jump on the monk and comes up behind him and has a stick, like from a tree, mm, a yeah. tree branch, and pokes him in the back with it and says, you know, don't turn around. I've got a Winchester 73 in your back. <laughs> and 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 it's another you know okay if if this guy were not from 
elsewhere. He wouldn't know what a Winchester 73 is. Um, but uh, I think actually the doctor says, I've got it pointed at your spine. Yes. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, so you could end up paraplegic if you, if you don't <laughs> do what I want. Right. Um, but I love the doctor in totally intimidating and taking somebody down with a stick. It's like when the 11th doctor takes down the Daleks with a jammy Dodger. Yeah. Well, and then when the monk does eventually see the stick, the doctor is not play. He doesn't, you know, he's not deterred. He says, "I can still beat you with it," you know. Basically. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was good. And, and for those who don't know what a Winchester seventy three, it's the Winchester eighteen seventy three, which is called the gun that won the West. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, yes. I was about to look that up, but thank you. Thanks. For- and that led to the building of the Winchester House, which was built by the wife of Mister Winchester. Mm-hmm. who was at least an eccentric and there is a legend that um and it may only be a legend but there's a legend so she like never finished the Winchester house she was building this mansion for herself and it just got more and more complex with stairways mm-hmm. to nowhere and internal architecture that made no sense and she just never finished it, it, it she always had construction work being done on it and there is a legend that there that there was a reason for that was other than just she was an eccentric, which is that uh, the ha- the sound of hammers must never stop at the hmm. Winchester House in atonement for all of the hammers of the rifles that took men's lives. Hmm. I, I think I remember seeing somewhere that uh, the, the eccentricities were to to uh, confuse any ghosts of the people who've died as a result of Winchester weapons. It, to, it, that that yeah. could be, but I, and the Winchester, yes, the Winchester house is on the list of topics <laughs> for mysterious world. I just yeah. haven't fully researched it yet and sorted yeah. out which of the rumors have a basis and which don't. Okay. Uh, that's it for the time meddler. Uh, as I mentioned, we have uh, some feedback and our first feedback is on our episode 301, the curse of Fenric, which was a seventh doctor story. This comes from Steve Clamp, who wrote on our Facebook page, really enjoyed listening to your thoughts on this. Dom, I know you found it hard keeping up with all the threads. Over here in the UK, there's an extended edition on DVD, which features all the cutout material. Maybe worth taking a look. There's even a scene which explains how they seem to break into the Navy base so easily. That's something I pointed out. Or more to the point, why it takes so long for them to be stopped. Personally, I think this is possibly the very best story in all of Classic Who. The writing is layered with three-dimensional characters. The direction is brave. The production value is not bad for 1989. And it features, surely, one of the best casts the show has ever had. Such a shame Classic Who was reaching new heights just as it was canceled. I can only wonder what could have been in a season 27. Yep, uh, that's true. Very good. And uh, incidentally, with those extra extended scenes, there's a website I refer to all the time when we're doing these shows uh, chakotea.net i'll see if i can put a link in the show notes that has transcripts from all the episodes of dark two classic and new and uh, the person who does that site often includes those bits that have been cut out over time from from the 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 versions that are available so uh that sort of stuff is in there so that would be uh excellent to check out if you're looking for that sort of thing yes all right, and then our other feedback comes from episode 302 in The Forest of the Night, the 12th Doctor story. This comes from Paul Leone, who wrote on our YouTube channel, Good episode of the podcast, if not of the show. I have to slightly disagree with you regarding Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indy's presence or absence has no impact on the big picture, but if he hadn't been there, Marion would have died, either once the Nazis got the amulet or maybe at the opening of the Ark. Hope the next story you cover is more enjoyable. Thank you, Paul. Uh, it was. <laughs> so, uh, that's very yeah. good. I'm glad I didn't have to watch that one. I'll be honest. <laughs> you you totally bailed on us, dude. <laughs> oh, I had I had something going. I don't remember what it was, and it doesn't matter. <laughs> I didn't have to watch it. I had a meeting. There was, we had a priest meeting, up, but it was just like, no, I'm glad I don't have to watch this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not one of the best. Uh, all right, so that'll do it this time. We, before we go, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Doctor Who, including Kelly B, Max S, Mark R, Rochelle K, and Jason H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Doctor Who and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. 
And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edited this episode. So we would love to hear what you think of this first Doctor story, The Time Meddler. You can let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com or the Secrets of Doctor Who Facebook page, or send an email to Who at sqpn.com, or visit the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord. We'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the 12th Doctor story, Dark Water. Until then, Father Cory Stiga, thank you for joining me and sharing The Secrets of Doctor Who. Thank you, Dom. Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Doctor Who on StarQuest. And remember, what do you expect? A space helmet for a cow? 